We are in 2 Samuel chapter 20. If you're turning in your Bibles, we're actually going to start in 19 verse 41. What we have in chapter 20 is this. It is the final installment of the saga that began nine chapters earlier, a minimum of 10 years earlier, probably more like 12 to 15 years earlier, when David met a woman named Bathsheba. And that is when a giant fork in David's life, because before that it seemed like David could do no wrong. He had the the Midas touch, right? And from then on out he has the Murphy touch and nothing goes right. And so as we jump into this night, Tonight, here's what I want to do. I want to take like four minutes and I want to recap this entire story because if you're like me, you get these installments every week, but it's kind of putting the whole thing together in a picture. And especially as we go into this final chapter, I think it really matters because this whole thing started as we know with that verse that said, at the time that the kings go out to war, David stayed home. And what does he do when he's at home? He goes up on his rooftop and he looks over and he sees a woman over there and and she's beautiful and, and he inquires about her. And what does he find out? He finds out that her name is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, Uriah. He finds out she's not available. She's unavailable, David. But David doesn't care, does he? He's king. He's gonna do what he wants. So he brings her into his house, gets her pregnant, and then to hide up for his sin, he, he has Uriah killed. And then Nathan the prophet comes to him and says, listen, David, you're setting a very, very bad example for your family, for your kids. And there's going to be things that happen and repercussions and legacy that happens because of this sin. And from then until now, that's what we're seeing. Because it's not too long after that, that one of David's sons, Amnon, sees a woman who's unavailable to him. It's his sister, Tamar. But just like his dad, he decides it doesn't matter to me that she's unavailable. And so he rapes his sister and creates this giant rift in the family. And, and Tamar's brokenhearted and she, she has to move out of David's household and she moves into the household with her brother, Absalom. And Absalom's angry for his sister. And he's waiting. He's waiting for King David to get involved. And two years go by and David does nothing. So after two years, Absalom's like, that's it. I'm taking matters into my own hand. He throws a party. He invites all of his brothers. And when Amnon has had quite a bit of wine, his servants fall upon Amnon and they kill him. He murders his brother and he flees and goes to his grandfather's house where he's there for three years. And it says that David longed to go to his son, but David does nothing. After three years, Joab, David's general, finally comes to, to David and he's like, dude, you got to bring Absalom back. And David says, fine, he can come back to Jerusalem, but I don't want to see him. And he can't come into my house. And Absalom comes back and two years go by and David does nothing. There's no reconciliation. And day after day, Absalom's sitting there in his house waiting for his father to reach back out to him. After those two years go by, finally David and Absalom do meet and they shake hands and they supposedly make up, but nothing's resolved, nothing's talked about, no action's taken. And from then on out, Absalom leaves and starts his political campaign against his father. It's exactly like our current political campaigns. He's gonna say how great he is and how bad the other guy is, right? That's what he does. He sits on the road where people would go to see the king to have their, their issues resolved and he stops them all on the way and he's like, King David, pfft. He didn't have time for you. If I was king, I would solve everything. There'd be no homeless problem. There'd be no smoke. I mean, if I was governor, I'd solve it all, right? I'll handle all of this. Four years go by. David does nothing. And it says during those four years that Absalom won the hearts of all the people of Israel. And after those four years, Absalom's ready. And he leaves Jerusalem And he goes 20 miles or so away to this city in Judah. It's actually the city where King David went when he first was inaugurated as king. He went to the city in Judah and Judah was the first tribe to make David king seven years before the rest of Israel did. And Absalom, walking in his father's footsteps, goes to that city and pronounces himself king and rallies this army around him and then heads back to Jerusalem to invade. And King David sees this rebellion, this army coming, and David flees Jerusalem to save his city from destruction. He leaves Jerusalem and he takes, 
his personal bodyguard of 600 men and their wives and their children. He takes the commander of his army, Joab, and they get out of town. And if you actually read that account, it's crazy. Absalom is coming in exactly as David's leaving. I mean, it is, it is the scene from the end of an action movie. It is touch and go there for a chapter and a half. You don't know if David's going to make it out, if Absalom's going to get him. David leaves behind 10 of his concubines to take care of his house. And Absalom comes into the city and he sees his father's house and he sees those concubines and he decides he's going to go into those concubines and he's going to rape them in front of all Israel to make himself a stench in his father's name, to goad him, to prod him. If you do nothing, I'll do something, Absalom thinks. And David flees. And David travels on a couple of days and he's 40 or so miles away and he finally rallies his troops and is ready and, and Absalom gets his army together and he leaves and pursues David. It wasn't Absalom's army. It used to be David's army. And since the commander's gone, Absalom appoints a new commander over the army. His name's Amasa. He's gonna play into our story tonight. And they leave Absalom and Amasa and the army and they pursue David. And David gets his troops ready. And he's going to go out and he's going to find a war against his son. And as he's ready to leave, his troops look at David and they say, you can't go. You can't go. If something happens to you, this is all over. David, you need to stay behind. And so he tells his generals, okay, but, but be kind to my son, Absalom. Be kind to my son. And they go out and David's men are victorious. And they're, they rout Israel and the Israelites are fleeing away from David and his men. And, and as they're fleeing, Absalom is riding his donkey through the stack of trees. And you guys know the story. His hair gets caught and his donkey runs away. And there's Absalom hanging. Perfect to be captured and brought back to his father, David. But instead, when the commander Joab comes along, he, he stabs Absalom with a javelin and he kills him. And he goes back and David finds out that his son is dead. And David is mourning and he's so sad the whole city is mourning and, and Joab and his army come back and they, instead of coming back to a city that's excited to see them for the victory that they have, they walk back into a city full of people who are in mourning and Joab's ticked. And he goes into David, this man is supposed to be his king, whose son he just killed and he chews him out. David, what are you doing? You've made it. These people risked their lives for you. They fought for you and now you're, now you're in mourning. You're acting like you, you wish that they were dead and Absalom was alive. And David goes out and, and he, he apologizes to his army. And, and Joab was probably partially right. But so was David to be in mourning. His son is dead. And then there's this weird transition time because Absalom's dead. But Israel anointed a new king instead of David. And David's still not back in Jerusalem. And it's this, it's this middle ground. And like, what's going on? We don't know who the king is or what should be happening. And, and David starts hearing these rumors that in all of Israel, the people are talking amongst themselves. And they're saying, well, you know, David was, David was a pretty good king. He defeated the Philistines. He defeated our other enemies. And, and then we, we, we did, we anointed Absalom king, but, but he's dead. We should probably bring David back. See, David hears these Rumors that these 10 tribes of Israel are, are calling him back. And, but you know who's not calling him back? It's, it's his own tribe, Judah. And David's thinking, what, what's going on? So he sends a messenger to his tribe of Judah. And he says, he says, hey guys, listen, all of Israel's asking me to maybe come back as king, but, but you're my own tribe. I mean, what's going on? Why haven't you guys invited me back? And, and he sends another messenger that's very interesting. He sends one to Amasa. The guy that Absalom appointed ruler over the, the army instead of Joab. And he says, Amasa, from now on, you're going to be my general. And it says that this letter that David sent back convinced all of Judah and convinced Amasa. And they say, you know what? You're right, David. We want you back. We want you to come back as king. And so David gets his 600 um, personal bodyguard and their wives and their kids. And they start this procession and they're going to go back into Jerusalem. And it's supposed to be an amazing time and an amazing parade. And, and they reach the edge of the Jordan and, and crossing the Jordan would have been a huge deal because that would mean you're back in the promised land. That's when you're back in Israel. And, and there's this beautiful scene there where these people who wronged David, they come down and David is gracious and forgives them. And, and then the people, they start arguing it's, it's verse 41 of 2 Samuel 19. It says this, Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? 
All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative. Why then are you so angry in this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense, or has he given us any gifts? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, we have 10 shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Why were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. An absolutely ridiculous argument breaks out. Hey, why, why is Judah getting the honor of, of bringing the king back? It was our idea first. And Judah's like, well, well, seven years ago, you know, we were the first people to make him king before you made him king. We're like, well, there's 10 of us and there's only one of you. Right? Have you ever heard your kids having stupid arguments like that? Right? It's ridiculous. And here's the thing. When Christians argue about stupid things, everyone loses. And we do, don't we? Don't we argue about stupid things? What kind of music we're supposed to play? What, what version of the Bible it should be? It, when is the tribulation? Is it before, pre-tib? Is it, it's, it's, what, is, what, what matters? That's what we should be discussing. Who's king and how are we supposed to follow him? That was the, that was the issue at hand. That's what these people lost sight of. But I was thinking about this today. I don't think it's just when we as Christians argue about things amongst ourselves. I think it's when we argue with non-Christians too. And we fight about things that are important. They're important things, but I think they miss the point. When I get into an argument with my non-Christian friend or coworker about abortion or LBGTQ or which politician is literally the antichrist, I'm never going to turn someone into a disciple of Jesus by convincing them that abortion is wrong. I'm never going to turn someone into a disciple of Jesus by convincing them that marriage is supposed to only be for a man and a wife. What's the question at hand? Who's king and how are we supposed to follow him? Because we get into these discussions with people, and the thing I always have to remember is, why should this person care about the king's law if they don't know who the king is? That's the discussion we need to be steering these conversations back to. Who's king, and how are we supposed to follow him? Because until you get that right, all the other stuff is just stupid things we argue about. Right? And as they argue about stupid things, stupid things happen. Right? What was it? Did you guys see that? Um, oh, I loved this. Did you see the quote by Sheriff Dave Daniels the other day about that guy? Oh, this, it was in the front of the Daily Courier. Sheriff Dave Daniels, he's my hero now. So somebody was starting arson fires and got a citizen's arrest. And apparently the citizens beat him up and then zip tied him to a tree. And they asked the, did you see this? And they asked the sheriff about it. Like, what are you going to do about the citizens? And what did Daniels say? Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. <laughs> right? And he goes, that guy played a stupid game. He won a stupid prize. These guys are about to win a stupid prize. It's the beginning of chapter 20, and here's what it is. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. All of a sudden, one guy pops up out of the crowd and he's like, this is just ridiculous. I don't care who king is. I have no portion in David. He's just the son of a Jesse, a little podunk farmer. It's time for all of us to leave. And I think it's really interesting here what he accuses David of. Because I think it's the same thing that our enemy accuses us of today. He's not one of us. And he's not even from an important family. You ever feel that after making a mistake, after blowing it big time, you walk into church and you feel that whisper of the enemy? What are you doing here? You're not one of them. You don't belong in church. Do you know what your family's done? You think about your legacy. This is the accusation that's put in front of David. And I think all too often, it's the accusation the enemy puts in front of us. It's like we talked about on Sunday. The enemy's weapon is lies. And that's what he lies to us about. The question is this, 
Why was David king? Was he king because he killed giants? Was he king because he wrote songs? Was he king because someday he'd be such a great leader? Was he king because God knew he'd never make giant mistakes? No, he was king because God chose him. God chose him. Why are you and I blood-bought sons and daughters of King Jesus training someday to rule and reign with him? Is it because we kill giants? Is it because we have such great faith and write beautiful songs and have amazing prayers? Is it because we never blow it? Is it because he chose us? He chose us. David's king for the same reason that you and I are sons of King Jesus, because he was picked. He was chosen. But David doesn't let this accusation just roll off his back. It's going to stick with him. It's going to bug him. So David leaves that area, verse 3, and here's what it says. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines who he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Ten women whose lives are ruined. Now, 12 years ago, whatever it is, when David first stood on that roof and saw Bathsheba and thought, I'm going to invite her into my house. What's the worst thing that could happen? Did it ever cross his mind that 12 years down the road, people's lives would be continuing to be ruined because of that mistake? And here's the thing. Sin, especially sexual sin, can and will affect almost everyone in your sphere of influence. Not just now, but in the future and for years to come. I don't think it had to be this way. If you look back at David's interaction with Absalom, he had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, I think, to go to his son, to teach him his son. But why didn't he? It's because he was embarrassed about his own mistakes, maybe. It's because he was ashamed. But sometimes the people I learn the most from are the people who failed the most. I think David missed this awesome opportunity, maybe from pride, maybe from shame, I don't know, to sit down with his son, Amnon, when he heard, you know, Amnon's, Amnon's got the hots for his sister. I mean, there's rumor mills, right? There's a lot of women who live in David's house. People know what's going on. Amnon, buddy, let me tell you, it's not a good idea. I know, I know I did it, I blew it. Absalom, I'm so sorry. How can we make this right together, right? time after time, but he doesn't do it. And I think when we sin, sexual sin, probably one of the hardest, any other sin, there's opportunities we have to confess, to make amends, to teach and to be open and to be honest and to prevent things like this because people's lives will continue to be ruined. The other thing I think is just really interesting about this is, is this question. When men play power games, who gets hurt? Women and children. That's what's going on. David and Absalom are playing power games, and who gets hurt? Women and children every single time. Right? So then we go on. And the king said to Amasa, remember, this is the general who was with Absalom, who's now with David, who's the new head over his army. And so David gives him his first task as head of David's army. Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Abishai is Joab's brother, one of David's main generals. He says to Abishai, now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to a fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gideon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow. And he died. 
Isn't the Old Testament great? (laughs) I didn't see that one on the flannel graph. David calls his new general, sends him out. Hey, go gather me up a bunch of people. You've got three days. Three days go by. No general, no people. David gets impatient. He sends Abishai and Joab. Joab comes out, sees the guy who replaced him. And then there's this weird thing. And I'm trying to picture it in my head, but here's basically what's going on. Joab somehow concealed this sword because Amasa's going to be like, Joab's got a bad reputation. Anyone who crosses Joab is dead. Okay? So Amasa's got to be a little bit okay, what's going on when I'm going to meet Joab? So he's watching him closely. Joab somehow rigs it that as he comes up, he doesn't have to reach over and grab his sword because that would be a dead giveaway to Amasa, who's probably a great warrior. He does something weird so that when he moves, his sword just falls out into his hand. Okay, I can't quite wrap my head around it. I kind of picture it like those old Westerns when the card player would have like the gun up his sleeve and he'd go like this and then like the little, right, like that. It's something like that. He's got like a hidden sword trick, Joab. I don't know, he's good at killing people. And so he pretends to give Amasa this kiss of welcome and instead he guts him like a fish, okay? And that's what happened and off we go. (laughs) Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. But Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway And anyone who came by seeing him stopped. I'll bet they did, right? And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Have you ever been stuck in a traffic jam and it's going super slow and you finally get up to the front and you realize there's a wreck that's not affecting the street at all, but everyone's just doing this? Rubbernecking? That's what happened, okay? Everyone's walking by me like, what happened to that? Is Whoa, that's gross. And they're not pursuing. So they drag a mass out in the field and then they're able to continue their pursuit. Verse 14. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Makkah and all the Bikrites assembled and followed him. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Makkah. They cast up a mound against the city and it stood against the rampart and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her and the woman said, are you Joab? And he answered, I am. Then she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I'm listening. And then she said, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? And Joab answered, far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri has lifted up his hand against David. Give him a loan and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. So they continued to pursue this guy named Sheba. He grabs together all of his family. It says that Sheba took the Bikrites with him. He was a his dad was named Bickery. It would be like if it was like James was leaving and he took all the Dennises with him, okay? It's a decent amount of people, but it's not a ton of people. And they flee into this city and Joab sets up a siege. It's exactly like we see it in the movies, right? He's building a ramp to try to go up over the wall because the city has walls around it. He's got a battering ram. He's trying to bang down the, the door. And this woman comes out. She's like, whoa, 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 time out. What's going on? <laughs> this city is innocent. And it's full of people faithful in Israel. Why are you going to destroy this city, Joab? There's so many people in here that are going to die because of this. And he's like, well, I don't really want to destroy the city. I just need this, this one guy, Sheba. And she's like, I can handle that. Give me till tonight. Taken care of, right? And she convinces all the people to chop off his head and throw it all over the wall. And Joab goes home. And this is the last installment of the saga that begins with Bathsheba. And here's what I think. I look at this and I think, this is a problem 
caused by David's own actions. And he completely overreacts to this problem. What do I mean by he overreacts? Well, listen, what did Sheba actually say? Did he say, every man follow me and let's overthrow David? Did he, did he try to start a war? Did he have a bunch of followers? No, he's just like, this is stupid. I'm going home. Who's going home with me? And everyone left. And David's pride was hurt. And he completely overreacts. And if it wasn't for this woman at the end, an entire city of people would be dead. And I look at this story and I think, how often am I like that? How often do I overreact? And when and why do I overreact? Because I see a lot of similarities to my propensity to overreact in this story with David. First off, I tend to overreact when it's a problem of my own making because I get defensive. I don't want people to know that this is my fault. I just want this thing to go away. And so I overreact. I also tend to overreact when it just seems like one too many. Do you ever get that? Like one too many problems coming right after, right after, right after. And when you should be gracious and when you should be kind, you just overreact. Okay, it's kind of like this. I have four kids, but the eight-month-old doesn't count because she can't ask me questions. So, but the other kids, this is their new favorite thing to do, which is just bombard dad with questions right when he walks in the door. So this will be typical. I'll walk in the door. Third child will come up, ask me a question. Then they go away. Second child, ask me a question. Second child, ask me a third question. First child, ask me a question. Then a follow-up to that question. Second child, ask me a third question and a fourth question. First child, ask me five more questions. Second child has two more questions related to the first two questions she had. First and second child get in an argument about the questions they're asking me. Poor, innocent third child walks in to ask simply their, third question, their second question. I go, that's it, I'm done! No more questions. Daddy doesn't even have his shoes off yet. Give me a minute. Am I, I'm the only one? Okay, sorry. <laughs> and I completely overreact. I think that's where David is here. He's like, I'm just, I'm done. I'm done. With, I know, I know I screwed up, but how many times do I have to pay for this? Time and time and time again, and he just loses his cool. I think he, like David, I need to be a person with more patience, especially when I'm dealing with the repercussions of my own stuff. It's my fault. It's my fault. I need to own that and be patient and kind. I think like David, sometimes I think I can lose my, lose my cool and overreact if I think my forgiveness or my kindness is being taken advantage of. Right, because what did David just do? He was just in a super forgiving mood. He just forgave this guy named Shimei in last chapter who was yelling insults and curses at David, right? He forgave this guy who lied to him about Mephibosheth. He forgives this other guy. He forgives this guy Amasa who was the, the commander of Absalom's army. Didn't work out well for Amasa, but David didn't know that, right? And then this guy comes and insults David and it's just the last straw. And his kindness is being taken advantage of. How many times are we supposed to forgive? 70 times seven, right? And I gotta tell you, sometimes it's hard for me. It's hard enough to forgive one person when they've sinned against you seven times or even 70 times. But sometimes it's even harder for me when it's the 70th person. And I've been forgiving and I've been... And then I just, I'm, I'm out. I'm out. I know this about myself and my spiritual tendencies. I can only pour out what I've been pouring in. And if I've been reminding myself of how much I've been forgiven and reminding myself of how much grace there is and reading through the gospels and thinking about what my king did for me, I don't run out of forgiveness as easily, right? I don't run out of forgiveness as easily. I think another thing here that could be why David just over, completely overreacts is this problem that he thought was gone crops itself back up again. Has that ever happened to you? This relationship issue you thought was done and then here it comes back. This problem with your kid that you, you, you thought was, was completed and then, and then it comes back and this conflict at work and it, we thought it was done, I thought it was over and now it's, now it's back again. 
I think I need to pray for patience and kindness in times like that. David just completely overreacts and almost gets an entire city of people killed. Last thing, and I think maybe this is the one that struck me the most, is this. I tend to overreact if things aren't happening as fast as I want them to. Because remember this story. Here's what happens. David sees this guy, Sheba. Sheba insults him. Sheba leaves. He doesn't really have any followers. So David's like, we got to deal with this. He sends Amasa. He goes, give him three days. Three days go by. Nothing happens. And I think if David's at all like me or if I'm at all like David, David spent those three days just getting himself worked up. Just, oh man, this is not good. Just in his own head. Oh man. Because what happens? After the three days, then he calls in Abishai and he's like, this is going to be worse than Absalom. Like, where did that come from? Three days of stewing on it and getting yourself worked up. What do I not see David do here that we see him do in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 10? And David sought the Lord. No, and David sat around and stewed in his anger. And the one leads to me overreacting, and the other leads to me being gracious. I need to seek the Lord. Because at this point, David completely overreacts, and he grabs Abishai and sends him. Now, I don't know how much you remember Abishai, but here's the thing about Abishai. Abishai is the guy who David's always having to keep from killing people. Okay? It's David and Abishai who first go down to see Saul, and Saul's asleep, and Abishai's like, let me kill him. David's like, dude, no, no, he's the king's anointed. Right? And there's another instance where Abishai, something happens and Abishai's like, let me go kill him. And David's like, dude, chill out, Abishai. It was, it was last chapter. That guy Shimei who insulted David comes back and Abishai's like, we got to kill him. And David's like, what am I going to do with you, Abishai? You're like a rabid dog. Three days stewing on this, not praying about it, getting worried. Abishai, <laughs> go get him. And completely overreacts. And here's the thing about Sheba. Sheba wasn't a threat. Sheba was just a foolish, worthless man, a pot stirrer, a loud mouth. Here's what you have. A foolish man, an overreacting king, and two overzealous, violent men. What finally diffuses this situation? Wisdom. A wise woman is what finally diffuses the situation. If you find yourself in a crazy situation that is spinning out of control because people are just overreacting and bloodthirsty and it's getting crazy, it is time to pray for wisdom. Colossians 4, 5, and 6 says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Where do I get wisdom like that? Proverbs 2, 6. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. And if all else fails, you can go with Proverbs 17, 28. Even fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongues. David would have been a lot better off to take thumper's advice from Bambi, right? If you can't say nothing nice, don't say nothing at all. And sometimes if I tend to overreact for whatever one of these reasons, occasionally I just get to keep my mouth shut and I'm going to stay out of a lot more trouble than if I get angry and I overreact because a city is almost destroyed, right? Okay, so that's the end. And then we go on to chapter 21 and here's what it says. Now there was a fam, oh, hold on. There's a few verses. They're boring, but we'll read them. <laughs> Every verse is valuable. Verse 23, now Joab was in command of all. This, these verses, if you are pregnant and looking for a name, this is the passage for you. Here we go. Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. And Benani, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahulad, was the record recorder and Shiva was secretary and Zadok and Abiathar were priests and Ira the Jerite was also David's priest. Okay. So there's a list of names. Take that for you're welcome. Okay. <laughs> Chapter 21, verse one. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord 
And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them. Saul had sought to strike them down in the zeal for the people of Israel and of Judah. Okay, Gibeonites, quickly. We see them in Joshua chapter 9. This is where Joshua's coming into the land. He's starting to conquer all the cities. Everyone's freaking out. And all of a sudden, this group of people comes in. They're from just over the hill, from the city that Joshua hasn't seen yet. But they try to trick Joshua. So they show up like they've gone on a very long journey and they've got old wineskins and their sandals are all beat up and their bread's all moldy. And they, they come in all haggard and they're, oh, Joshua, son of Nun, have mercy on us, make a treaty with us. And, and Joshua says, well, what up? How do I know you're not trying to trick me? You're just, you might be just next door. No, look at our bread and how old it is and our, and our sandals. And, and we're not tricky people. And, and Joshua makes a pact with them. And then the next day or two finds out that he's been tricked, but decides he's going to keep his pact. And then Saul apparently breaks this treaty and goes after the Gibeonites and tries to destroy them. We don't actually have that story in the Bible of Saul going after the Gibeonites. This is the only recorded incident of it. But I think there's something very interesting, a principle here, and it's this. God expects us to keep our promises. And time doesn't factor in to our promises, does it? God's correction sometimes may come a long time after the offense, right? It's really interesting God expects us to keep our promises. I think as Christians, we should be men and women of our word. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. What a testament that would be to the people of God. Christians keep their promises. And if not, maybe God will bring it to your attention. Maybe it's time to pray. Lord, are there promises I've broken that I need to keep? Bring them to my attention. I don't want famine in my land, right? Bring them to my attention. And David said to the Gibeonites, verse three, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, it is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, what do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in his territory of Israel. Let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. David goes to the Gibeonites. What do we need to do to make this up to you? I'll do anything you want. The Gibeonites say, we want seven of Saul's kids. David says, okay. Verse seven. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Amorine, so many names this chapter. Okay, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, who she bore to Adriel, the son of Brazliel, the Mahalathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. Slightly confusing. It says at the beginning that David spared Mephibosheth and then like a, a verse later, it's like, and David turned over Mephibosheth. There's two Mephibosheths because such an awesome name, right? There is Mephibosheth, Saul's son, who is one of the people that David turns over. And there's Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son. So it's actually pretty simple. My name is James. I was named after my uncle James, okay? David's person he's protecting is named Mephibosheth. He was named after his uncle, Mephibosheth. Okay, so that's, that's what happened there. And David turns them over and they're all hung right at the beginning of barley harvest. Verse 10, then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for, before herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh Gilead, 
who had stolen them from the public square of Beth Shehan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul at Gilboa. And he brought up there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son, Jonathan, and they had gathered the bones of all those who were hanged. And they had buried the bones of Saul and his son, Jonathan, in the land of Benjamin, in Zila, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. The men are hung and they're left hanging there. And one of the mothers of the men, Rizpah, she comes out and she spreads her sackcloth out on a rag, on a rock next to them. And she stays there day after day, keeping the birds and the beasts away from her dead child. And this is at minimum weeks, but more likely months because the barley harvest begins in March and rains don't come until September or October. It's a long period of time. And when David hears about this, he reacts and he acts and he comes down and he cuts the men down and he takes their bones and he goes and he collects Saul's and Jonathan's bones because when Saul and Jonathan were killed at the end of 1 Samuel 1 and the Philistines hauled them off, these men from Jabesh Gilead, they went and they rescued the bodies so they wouldn't be defiled and cut them down as they're supposed to and brought the bones back to Jabesh Gilead. So David goes, he gets Saul and Jonathan's bones, he gets these people's and he takes them and puts them to rest in the tomb of their father. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. And the question I have here is this, did David do the right thing? I read this chapter and I say, was what David did here right? And a lot of people think so, but I gotta tell you, I don't. I don't think so. I think that in this instance right here, David, dealing with a problem, not of his own making, but of someone close to him. I mean, David and Saul were close. And David's been dealing with the fallout from Saul for a long time. I think David in this situation is just fed up. He's done. It's like, I'm dealing with my own junk. Now I got to be dealing with Saul's junk too. And he just wants this problem to go away. And he ends up compromising his principles to make this problem go away. Because David set out intentionally to not be the type of king who killed all the sons of the former king. That's why there's so many of them left over. David, David thought that was important to him. He thought that was important to God. And, and he sets out and he says, I'm not going to be a king like that. And then here he ends up compromising his principles. And so I ask myself, like, what sorts of problems, what sorts of situations do I find myself in that lead me towards a situation where I would like David compromise my principles? And I think the first thing is this. David asked for um, a word that I can't think of at the moment. Um, <laughs> David asked for information, but failed to ask for instructions. Ever done that? David says, hey, Lord, why is there a famine in my land? And, and God says, it's because of what Saul did in Gibeah. And David says, perfect, I got this. I was like, wait, wait. okay, Lord, how do you want me to handle that? What should I do about that? David doesn't inquire of God, does he? No, who does David ask how he should handle this problem? The Gibeonites, who it says specifically are not of God's people. So David prays, well done, finds out from the Lord there's a problem, okay, great, and then goes to someone who's not God's people and is like, how do I solve this? That's where it goes sideways. How often have I done that? All right, Lord, what's going on? You're being selfish in your marriage. Okay, great. Dr. Phil. <laughs> right? And that's where it goes sideways. Lord, thank you for revealing that to me. Now, how do you want me to address that? Because here's what happens. David ends up taking the advice or the instruction of the Gibeonites, and in so doing, he breaks God's laws. Deuteronomy 24, says, 16 says this, the father shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. David just put seven men to death because of their father's sin, and God said, we don't do that in Israel. He also left them hanging. Deuteronomy 21 tells us this. If a man committed a crime punishable by death and is put to death and you hang him on a tree, 
His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. God said, you don't leave someone hanging like that. It defiles the land. What was David's original problem? Famine, a defiled land. And he finds himself right back in the same situation because he asked for instruction. He asked for information, but he failed to ask for instructions. I pray that I would be a man, that we would be a church that asks for God's instructions, seeks his word. Yes, Lord, this is a problem. What do you, Father, want me to do about it? And seek godly counsel, other men and women walking with the Lord. He's got, it just told us that David's got, there's three priests in the last five verses. David doesn't talk to any of them. We need to seek godly counsel when God reveals the problems in our life. I think the one other time that I really can find myself in a situation where I will compromise my principles is if I'm facing a problem that feels so big that I don't think I can affect it in any real way. Famine, famine's huge. What, what am I supposed to do about a famine? I will do anything to make this go away. It's a dangerous place to be in because it leads us to an area where we compromise our principles. A bill I can't pay, a neighbor I can't get along with, a spouse who seems completely checked out on the relationship. I can't do anything, I will do anything to fix this, no. I'll seek the Lord and find an answer in his scripture and in his people in how to proceed because otherwise I'm gonna head down a dangerous pathway. But God does forgive the land. Why? Because he's merciful. Because he's merciful and he forgives. And I don't see any other reason other than that. And you know what? I don't need one. I don't need another reason for God to forgive me other than that he's merciful because I can't think of one. God forgives. And now David faces another problem. They just keep coming. It's, chapter, it's verse 15. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ish Ibob, that's a good child's name, Ishbenabob, one of the, you can call him Bill Bob for short. <laughs> Bill Bob, is your real name William? No, Ishbenabob. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Back on track. All right. <laughs> one of the descendants of the giants whose spear weighed 300 shekels, that's about seven and a half pounds, and who was armed with a new thor- sword thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeru, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. David faces another problem. The Philistines are back. David's like, I got this one. I know how to deal with Philistines. And so out he goes and almost gets himself killed because he's tackling a problem he's not ready to tackle. Again, he didn't sink the Lord. But I think there's something else going on here that I can learn from that we can learn from. When do I find myself in over my head tackling something I ought not to be tackling? I think like David, oftentimes it's when I think I'm trying to make up for something I did in the past. Follow me for a second. Because when did this all start? It started with the verse, when the kings go out to war, David stayed home. David's older now. He's much older. And he's weary. I bet he knew it. But the Philistines are here. I'm not doing that again. And I love that heart. I love that sentiment. But I think all too often we as Christians can start to try to to do this thing where we balance the scales. Have you ever done this in your own heart, in your own mind? Like I made all these mistakes in the past and so I need to do all these good things in the future to, to balance out the mistakes. It's like that kid who sits down on the 1st of November and is like, I'm not getting any Christmas presents this year from Santa. I gotta start being really, really extra nice to everybody. Right, like they can balance all those things out. You ever play that game in your own mind, in your own heart? I gotta do all these good things, Lord, now because I I messed up these other things then. Now, there's a difference between that and making restitution to people 
Because obviously we just saw with the Gibeonites, there's a place for that. There's a place to make up for things that you've done wrong and to seek reconciliation and forgiveness and to be gracious and merciful. But there's a time in our lives also where we're just like, I blew it here and so now I'm gonna do this, right? Does that make sense? Anybody else do that in your own heart? It's like, man, I, I, I blew it last Friday and now I'm gonna read my Bible all week this week. It, reading your Bible all week is good, but it, because you blew it last Friday, that, that doesn't, they don't cancel each other out. We can't balance the scales. Like somehow a good deed cancels out a bad deed. There's only one thing that cancels out our bad deeds, right? It's the blood of our Savior. It's the only thing that cancels out my bad deeds. And so what is my motivation for what I'm doing today? What is my motivation for serving the Lord? Because I've met people who are out serving the Lord and they're like, I'm going to be a missionary in Africa. Why? Because I was such a rotten kid. Well, if God called you to be a missionary in Africa, great. But if you're doing it to try to balance the scale, you are going to get in over your head. And like David, you might almost die. Right? It's so important for us to realize. Like Paul said, I don't look at what's behind me. I look at what God has in front of me. What has God called you to because he's called you to it? Not because you're trying to balance the scales from things you've done previously in life because that can end a disaster. And this is David's last battle. It's kind of a bummer couple chapters. I mean, I learn a lot and I see a lot and I enjoy them, but I gotta tell you, I love how it ends. I love the ending of chapter 21. Look at this. And after this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai the Hushite struck down Zaph, who was one of the defendants of the giants, descendants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elahan, the son of Jeragoyim, the Bethamite, struck down Goliath, the Gaitite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he also was descendant from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath and they fell by the hands of David and by the hand of his servants. 40 years ago, there was a giant facing the children of Israel and the entire army was encamped across a valley from him. And what did they all say? Shoot, no one can kill a giant. Are you kidding me? It can't be done. And there's one little shepherd boy with faith, such great faith. My God can do anything from us. Don't you know whose God we serve, Israel? Don't you know what you can do with God on your side? And he kills Goliath. And 40 years later, we have a band of giant killers. And I think that's such a cool legacy because there's all these things that David does that are mistakes. And I think we learn from him. But the one thing that I really learned from David is this, a man of faith who follows God can accomplish anything and will inspire others to go after him and to do the same great things. That is the legacy I wanna take away from David's life. A man of faith, a woman of faith, who's willing to step out and follow God will lead many more people on many great adventures and conquer many giants. Amen? Father, I thank you for this church, for this passage, for this evening. Bless us as we go our way. May we be men and women of wisdom and faith who follow you, who ask the important questions, who's king and how do we follow him and who live our lives according to such things. Seeking you, when we don't know what to do, seeking your guidance. Guide us, Lord, even this day and this week. In Jesus' name, amen.